Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, we are... You know, we've had a we've had a, a few episodes. Uh, Kate and I were off last week, uh, but we've had a few episodes where we're in this mode of okay, Biden won, but we're still in this kind of like nether world where Trump isn't admitting it, and there's still okay. This state may very unlikely but possibly going to do this really weird thing and still like a little a little tension in the background about uh, you know is there some way this could get whatever and but now uh what is it maybe a week or so ago without admitting anything and without conceding anything trump went ahead and let the transition process go forward which, as I think a lot of people said at the time, that's about as close as you're going to get to this guy conceding. Uh, and there has been, as much as the conspiracy theories and calls for coups and, and martial, all, all kind of craziness has in some ways increased, there's also been this subtle shift where even from Trump, he clearly gets that the exposure of the vast conspiracy and all that kind of stuff is not going to stop him from no longer being president on January 20th. That's clearly sunk in. He gets that. It uh, doesn't accept that it's legitimate, doesn't accept that it's okay, fair, all the different things, all the, tr- all the, all the different Trump world, um, you know, adjectives of special pleading and all that kind of stuff. But it is kind of different. The election is over. I mean, I think it is in most states literally over. I mean, what is it? Wisconsin has uh, certified yesterday. Uh, Arizona, maybe yesterday, the day before. Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania has. Uh, Georgia did. So I think, is there any state that is not, um, I mean, certification is not, you know, you get into all these levels of weirdness, right? I mean, they're not going to. Michigan certified as well, right? Yeah. Pretty certain they did. Uh, You know, because in, I think it's, what is it? Today's the second. And I believe by the, is, is it the eighth, the electors have to have been chosen in the states. I think that's the federal deadline. And then I believe, again, to quote me on this, I believe it's December 14th, which is when the, the Electoral College actually meets. And then there's a date a little later than that when, um, you know, this kind of largely ceremonial process where the results of the Electoral College uh, vote are brought before the two houses of Congress and blah, 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 blah. I mean, like I said, Joe Biden's going to be a year into his presidency and they're still going to be saying it's it's subject to litigation and that kind of stuff. But we're in a different place. Uh, and you can see that in, in, in various ways. Uh, you know, one of the most interesting is, again, as far as I can tell, most... Uh, 
you know, most Republican senators and, you know, very few have actually said, all right, this is done. Uh, Donald Trump is lost and Joe Biden is going to become the president. But you can see you can see it in their austerity. Right. You can see it in their in in their uh, getting upset about about uh, Biden nominee tweets and all that kind of stuff. So lots to talk about. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the uh, continuing, increasingly uh, surreal, uh, you know, Trumpite fraud litigations and 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 all that kind of stuff and a few other things that uh, David just told me we'd be talking about and I've forgotten already um not that they're Georgia, not worth Georgia listening as well. uh, yeah. Georgia well but wait but George but that oh the the uh, the runoffs in 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 Georgia yes that that too in any case before we get to that who's excited for winter it says here in the in the um and the ad copy crickets in parents. So I'm not, I, I don't want to. I don't want to actually do like crickets, crickets. Same, same here. <clears throat> this season, beat your winter blues with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. Grady's delivers the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing coffee straight to your door for less than a buck per cup. Sip it hot on frigid mornings or spike it over ice for a caffeinated quarantine cocktail. Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit is easy to use and always ships free. Each kit makes 36 cups and is available in regular or decaf. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. So, uh, David and Kate, my two, is it co- I guess not co-hosts, like tri-hosts. <laughs> right, because it's I don't know how that works. Yeah. Uh, and you, so, David, what uh, remind us what we're what we're talking about? Yeah. Today. Well, I thought we could talk about something you hinted at, Josh, in your intro, which is this uh, slow realization among Republicans that Biden will be the president. And there's been, you know, Biden has announced a number of cabinet picks uh, for his economic team, his foreign policy and national security team, and one that's kind of gotten a bit of, uh, I guess manufactured scandal is over Neera Tandon to become the Office of Management and Budget uh, Administrator, I guess. And there's been concern and pearl clutching, I guess, among Republicans about some of her tweets going after uh, Republicans and and things like that. And um, all of a sudden, after four years of total silence on Trump's tweets, all of a sudden, oh, we're concerned about uh, decorum and tone and all this kind of stuff. And I thought you had an interesting blog post yesterday that got at some of this and kind of a wait for our readers and listeners to kind of navigate this minefield about Republicans suddenly, you know, caring about the debt and deficit, like you say, caring about mean tweets, caring about, you know, tone and decorum. And I wondered if you could just kind of go through that a little bit, um, spell it out for our listeners who might not have seen the piece yet. Well, you know, there's there's a series of issues I've been trying to kind of get my head around over uh, the last few months, especially over the last uh, couple of weeks, as we've sort of, you know, had this new reality coming into view, and it 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 kind of starts with something that that to me is very basically very basic about politics and just life in general, that you need to be very good at distinguishing between things that you control and things that you do not control. And to try to keep things on the things that you control and not on the things, trying to control things you don't. 
Now, obviously, Republicans can be hypocrites and and say all sorts of things, and they get uh, they have the power that they got through being elected. And if they want to, and it seems very possible, they may not even hold a hearing on Neera Tandon, you know, because they say she's mean and and that she's, you know, had a had a kind of a, a very anti-Trump uh you know, persona on, on Twitter. I, I think the key is to me, and again, they can do that. There's n- and there's no law against being a hypocrite and sort of applying one set of standards to your friends and another set of standards to your to your opponents or enemies or whatever. But what it really comes down to is we can decide when to just engage in conversations. Republicans are entitled to their votes, but they're not entitled to a good faith engagement with bad faith arguments. And uh, one of the people to me who I I, I think has has um, captured this in a way that is that is uh, clarifying and helpful to me is a TPM alum Brian Boiler, who is now I think he's still at Crooked Media, you know the podcast uh, empire. Uh, and, and again, that's a basic thing. They're entitled to their votes. They're not entitled to be taken seriously, to be engaged with on a nonsensical argument. And it's a nonsensical argument because it's one they don't believe. And there's no reason to engage in an argument with someone who does not believe the argument they are making. And, uh, one of Brian's points is that it's going to be, it is going to be um, is going to be really key how that how the principle how the approach I am describing is taken up by members of the political press. How you know, kind of how the next few years are going to go. Now, obviously, uh, I am in in what I'm saying here, I'm speaking as someone who generally supports Democrats, as someone who, you know, has a certain political point of view. But journalists, ones who, you know, kind of purport not to come uh, towards their journalism um, with any sort of uh, political posture or engagement, also have a responsibility not to take seriously to engage as serious points that people make when they don't believe what they are saying themselves. Uh, So that was kind of what that post is about. And I don't have my own, you know, my own thoughts on this fully fleshed out, but I think that principle is really important. And uh, a lot of that comes from stuff that many of us learned uh, during the Obama years. And I think in some ways, there was something else I was reading about this uh, last night. In some ways, uh, that's kind of one of the takeaways of the Obama administration. It's not exactly, it's not exactly parallel, but um, they engaged with with Republicans on a lot of bad faith arguments on a lot of bad faith, um, not arguments so much, uh, you know, one of the things, they frittered away like a year 
you know, negotiating with these gangs and groups of moderate, you know, purportedly moderate Republican senators. And that was all just like Lucy with the football. So it's, you know, what are you going to engage on? What are you not going to engage on? Yeah, I feel like I kind of have two thoughts on this, one of which being that if Republicans do end up holding the Senate, you know, if um, Democrats lose one or both of the Georgia runoff races, I think it's going to be extremely frustrating as, you know, either a person who supports Democrats or just someone who wants to see productive legislating for, you know, a whole host of reasons and on a whole host of topics. But if there's one thing we've learned from the Trump administration, it's that getting your people confirmed by the Senate is just like not that important. Grand scheme, you know, there are ways to get around it. You can kind of be crafty with the Vacancies Act and with your non-Senate confirmable, you know, underlings to your main people. So I think if that happens with the Senate, of all the bad faith we're going to end up seeing from the Republican Party, I kind of think these squabbles over the secretaries might not end up being the most important. Um, But kind of to your point, Josh, this feels so familiar to anyone who watched the Obama years, you know, who watched Republicans kind of fabricate a reason why they were going to be opposed to this, circulate the talking points among their members, and then hold fast to it, even if it doesn't, you know, make a lot of sense, or even if you you kind of prod it a step further, and there's really nothing behind it, except, you know, a desire to be obstinate, or a desire to somehow force a Democratic administration to do Republican things. Um, And it just, that's what it feels like, you know, you just have all these like, feelings rushing back of, you know, of Merrick Garland, of McConnell's kind of gleeful gridlock, you know, and I think not that these cabinet tiffs are probably attracting your kind of the attention of your everyday non-political person, but the game in Georgia is all about enthusiasm and turnout, right? That's the that's a whole ball game in a runoff. And I think for Democrats to get refired up, you know, the thing people are worried about is that Trump has already been dispatched so people aren't going to have that same motivation to come out for the January race. But I just think there is a possible downside for Republicans to kind of be obstructionist right out the gate to not even really pretend like they're going to work with the Biden administration. And, you know, that is part and parcel with the refusal to call him president-elect, the coddling Trump, the deciding to be opposed to a secretary for no better reason than they don't like her social media presence. I think there's been a lot of discussion about how much people like split governments, how much that is going to be kind of a tally in the Republicans' favor. But I don't think there's been as much conversation about the fact that what Republicans do in these next few months could have the adverse react uh, effect of really frustrating Democratic voters and of reminding them there is not going to be any bipartisanship. A Republican Senate is not going to work with the Biden administration on anything meaningful. So, you know, it's not just kind of a choice between a more progressive flotilla of legislation or a more, you know, bipartisan moderate um, batch. It's kind of the choices. You're either going to have an administration that's able to legislate at all or you're not. And 
I'm not particularly sure Republicans are doing themselves a lot of favors by kind of so baldly showing what how they plan to act for the next four years, even though it's not, you know, a huge surprise for anyone who was paying attention during the Obama years. Yeah, yeah in I a think, way, I'm sorry, go ahead. In a way, I mean, it, there are so many similarities to Biden coming into office, you know, in the wake of an economic collapse and just overall devastation and 2008, you know, that was the case with the financial collapse. And now we have COVID wreaking havoc, you know, in, in many different, uh, different different ways. And, you know, I think in 2008, nine, Democrats obviously wanted to go bigger with the stimulus package with rescuing the economy. And that's sort of the same way now. Right. And, you know, we have maybe a modest COVID relief bill coming out in the lame duck session, but no more stimulus checks for people struggling. It's going to be kind of just the bare minimum. And, I don't know, like you say, Kate, maybe that comes back to bite Republicans a little bit and when people are struggling and looking for, you know, Congress to provide some sort of help and relief, I guess. I think, you know, one one thing, and this goes back to the early Obama years, 2009, 2010, where a lot of this got started. You know, there's that famous, uh, you know, there's that quote that everybody uh, circles around uh, for Mitch McConnell you know, at the very beginning of the administration, basically saying, yeah, my job is to make sure you fail. A one-term president or something, Yeah, one-term right? president. Yeah. And the thing is, I've always been sort of of two minds about this, that the opposition's job is to make the president a one-term president. That is kind of, I mean, that may not be the central job, but that is what they are always trying to do, right? And... um even though they will say it and maybe, you know, do some things to allow the government to function, an opposition party is never trying to help the president succeed. Not in political terms, maybe for the, you know, so there's a, there has always been a sense in which McConnell's kind of saying out loud what I think opposition leaders always do and to an extent are supposed to do, right? Now, and, and so, and the key is there, so that is not as strange as, as I think some people uh, make it out to be. Um, and you can't stop that. But I think the key issue, um, the key problem and, and big mistakes, big sort of broad strategic mistakes that uh, uh, Barack Obama made was, you know, you need to say, OK, you're trying to defeat us. You're in opposition. You have a certain amount of power. Okay, we accept that, and we're going to try to defeat you. <laughs> we're not going to. We're not going to 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 run around in circles with you. Why would we do that? You're trying to defeat us. We're going to try to defeat you, and we'll see who comes out on top. And that is something. That, you know, there's an article that I read yesterday, um, and I don't. I don't get to read nearly enough because I don't know why exactly. I I read almost no articles, but I read a really good article in Vox by David Roberts. It's called Joe Biden should do everything at once. And that that's basically the argument. It should and, and it's really again, it's an implicit and sometimes explicit critique of the early Obama administration. And this isn't about being, you know, anti-Obama. You learn things, right? You 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 need to learn lessons of of things that have happened. Um one of the one of the sort of the signature things about the early Obama years is, well, we're going to seek, you know, we're going to we're going to do this and that and then the other and we're going to 
do this one thing and it's going to build us political capital and uh you know we're kind of we're going to kind of clever it out right and 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 uh you know cleave off some republic all this stuff and and what roberts is saying is first of all that obviously didn't work because you had no good faith partner on the other side and the one thing we should learn from trump is you get power do everything at once don't sequence things don't play cute don't you know kind of have sit downs with susan collins that you should say hey the door is open if you want to you know if you want to have some input here and sort of broaden the votes a bit i'm here but don't wait don't wait for anything and do everything and i and i must say i mean there's he makes a pretty good argument that this is in many ways you know trump showed us the the value, the success of action. And this really goes back to something, you know, I wrote a lot, I wrote some about in during the, um, during the 2016 election, and actually in back in 2015, in the early days of the 2016 election, that one of Trump's sort of geniuses is action, moving more quickly than the people who oppose him. And that really is how he blew through the, the primary opposition. And an analogy I used was to this guy, oh God, I'm, the name of the guy escapes me at the moment, but he's a, uh, was a kind of a military theorist uh, in, in the, I think he was in the Air Force. And he came up with this thing called OODA loops. Right. And it's an acronym that I, I don't remember. I, I, I'm spacing on the exact words for, in, for that acronym. But it came and I know I'm going on a little here. So bear with me. Uh, it came out of again, I think this guy was in the Air Force. He's like a colonel, you know, kind of military intellectual came out of trying to figure out what made good fighter pilots. And what it came down to, what OODA loops means is that we are all trying to, and again, he's got a, he's got a series of words that kind of capture loosely what I'm about to describe, but whether we are in a dogfight 20,000 feet up in the air or in our daily lives, we are constantly seeing what the other person is doing, making sense of what the other person is doing, devising a counter strategy and doing it. Right. And you're we don't all have opponents exactly, but, you know, you get the basic idea. And what uh, this unnamed guy whose name escapes me at the moment came up with was if you can speed your loop up and see the situation, take stock of the situation, come up with your counter and do your counter, if you can do it fast enough that you can be coming up with your plan and executing your plan before the other guy does, you're changing the reality before the other person can act on the reality you just changed. And you get ahead of them and they can never catch up. Because again, you're changing the reality on the ground before they get a chance to react to it. And that's really what Trump did in 2015. 
because he does one thing. His opponents and their press staffs are, come, you know, oh, got a press release to respond to this latest Trump outrage. But he's already like on CNN doing a call in and doing another outrage. <laughs> right. So or he's tweeting. He's moving faster than they are. He's maintaining the initiative. And, uh, you know, this is my 20 minute uh, uh, diatribe about this. But that's really what Biden needs to do. And it's a little worrisome because that's not that's not Joe Biden's experience or comfort zone. But you take power. You use every bit of your legitimate power to change things quickly and make your opponents react. And it's really going to be a question about whether he has it in him, whether he has the flexibility of mind and experience to absorb the new reality that we are in and confront it on its own terms and not confront it with the uh, mores, tactics, strategies that made sense being a sort of a prominent senator in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Well, Kate, maybe we can... um turn to some reporting you've done lately, which is focusing on the Georgia runoffs, which are coming up on, what, January 5th, almost a month away from now. Trump is scheduled to visit this weekend uh, the lieutenant governor of Georgia, forgetting his name. Sorry, go ahead. John Boyd. Oodaloops. Loops. John Boyd. All right. <laughs> Air Force Colonel John Boyd. All right. Good to Proceed. know. Proceed. Yes. Um, The lieutenant governor of Georgia was on CNN yesterday, not exactly looking forward to Trump's visit. Uh, Trump has been, you know, going after all sorts of Republican officials, including Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state. Uh, And yesterday we had one of Raffensperger's deputies, a top election official. His name is escaping me. Gabe, someone. Gabe Sterling. Mm -hmm. Sterling, right. Saying like enough is enough. You know, Trump's insane, uh, you know, outbursts are leading to death threats and just, you know, threats of violence against Republican officials in the state. Anyways, Trump is coming this weekend. You've done some reporting kind of about maybe what Trump's push will will do to the race. And then you've, you've also written a bit about Purdue and Loeffler kind of not backing down from their own, I guess, endorsements and complicity in Trump's insanity. But just kind of catch us up on what's the latest there. What um What are kind of the the key points that our listeners should should keep in mind as we fast approach those special elections. Yeah, so I think Trump's behavior is kind of one of the biggest X factors in the runoff right now. Um, and is an interesting area because Purdue and Loeffler um, have pretty clearly embraced him. You know, they've invited him to campaign. They have played up his kind of election conspiracy theorizing, even what it means, you know, attacking their own state's election officials. So they're, you know, they're on board with him. And that just shows us that they think they need Trump and, you know, ergo his followers more, well, more obviously than they care about restoring people's faith in the elections, but also more then the lingering threat that kind of accompanies Trump's conspiracies, which are, you know, if you're being told all the time by the president that you love that the election was rigged, that your vote didn't count, that the votes of all the people you're friends with didn't count, um, you know, yeah, crazy. That the governor is the governor is corrupt and all that stuff, right? Right. All the political actors are corrupt, you know, 
depending on how tinfoil hat-ish you are, that a server was hacked, that votes were switched, that people were paid off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why in the world would you vote again? Why would you even participate in a system that you're being told day in and day out isn't real, is, is not going to matter in the end because it's rigged? Um, you know, so there is a degree to which I think, you know, we've heard some from some Republican operatives in the state who are worried about that, who are worried that he's going to dishearten people out of participating because he keeps telling them that it doesn't matter how they vote. Um, and that's a risk that Purdue and Loeffler are embracing by, you know, going to these ends to keep Trump on their team and are playing into because after Sterling kind of had his angry tirade yesterday, which, you know, sure, I get his anger. To me personally, this is also a state that is kind of our country's leader of voter suppression. So it's a little, you know, you take it with a little grain of salt, these people's like fury now that they're kind of under attack instead of the voters that they've been suppressing. But anyway, you know, so he has this attack or this uh, speech and he calls out Leffler and Purdue in particular and says, you know, you're, you're right now competing for a position of power. Uh, it's, you know, you must push back. You must kind of check these conspiracy theories. And then they responded with almost identical statements um, late last night where, you know, they said, of course, absolutely, we are against violence of any kind, you know, strong stand. And then they transition into, however, we will not apologize for calling out the problems with our election system. And then they end with, and that is why Senator fill in the blank is fighting so hard to keep the runoff election fair and transparent, you know, thereby not only not even coming close to calling out Trump for anything, you know, really doubling down on that, and then ending both of their statements with this kind of concocted doubt about if the runoff will be fair or, you know, will be conducted in a, a transparent, accurate way, which... Okay, Kate, isn't there, isn't there a kind of I, I, I've been t- trying to get my head around this. Isn't isn't there kind of a related but distinct uh, uh, demoralization risk, which is not I mean, we, we can one way to look at it is what you said, the kind of like people are going to say, wow, it's it's rigged. Mm-hmm. It the fix is in. Why am I going to vote? Right. It's it doesn't really matter. It's going to be it's it's going to be rigged for the Democrats and all that kind of stuff. But it seems to me the more now some people are going to think that I think people are highly capable of of the cognitive dissonance that allows you to be saying it's it's being run by Hugo Chavez, but also <laughs> man, I get out to vote, want to elect my, you know, just p- people are able to hold two concepts in their head at one time. But what seems to me the potentially, and maybe this is wishful thinking on my part and a lot of Democrats' part, is that you get a a slice of Republican voters saying that, you know, Republicans other than Trump are part of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't save Trump from the stolen election. Uh, They're waffling, you know, the, the governor and secretary of state certified the election and, you know, kind of confirmed the steal and, and, and a kind of like a a Trumpist protest vote against the Republican establishment, such as it is at this point. And clearly, Loeffler and Purdue are trying to keep on side there, right? Kind of, oh, no, no, no. If you really want to make a statement for Trump, you got to elect us. But that's, at some level, that's, it's, it's, it's got to be a little weird if, if, 
if the Republican president is like repeatedly denouncing your hard right wing Republican governor. So is is that or are we kind mm-hmm. of just packaging those two related things kind of in one package? Well, I think they're just related to the degree that both of them are likely to affect the same group of people. Um, you know, people whose devotion to Trump trumps their you know, desire for a Republican Senate, or that that devotion comes first and foremost before a whole host of kind of other Republican priorities. But no, you're totally right. And if you kind of venture into these MAGA swamps, there is some circulating stuff like, you know, write in Trump on January 5th kind of thing. And there, and Democrats are picking up on that. Um, there's this pretty humorously named super PAC called Really American that's um, left-leaning Biden supporting. And they are crowdsourcing these billboards that have Purdue and Loeffler on them that say things like, you know, they didn't fight for Trump. They're not going to fight for you, you know. Um, so exactly that kind of posturing. And that's a, also a thing on MAGA Twitter is people saying things like, you know, who needs Democrats when you've got these Republicans, like, kind of thing. So, and I think all of those factors go to kind of the air of mystery around the runoff a little bit, just because when you try to apply conventional wisdom to this, the conventional wisdom is that the Republicans are, are going to win, that, you know, Democrats always lose statewide in Georgia or until this year, kept losing again and again. Um, that Democrats do not fare well in runoffs because it's hard to get people to turn out in a random midwinter election. Um, But then you just have all this kind of weird stuff floating around that seems to, you know, some of it seems to help one side, the idea that people might want to have a check on the on a Democratic president in a Democratic House. Um, And then you have the fact that those are people who would tend to be more, you know, centrist. And they're now kind of, you know, looking at a race that has been so Trumpy, you know, like, and things are just getting, I don't want to say devolving because I think the civility debate is dumb, but getting kind of more personal, more pointed. What you saw a lot in the pre-runoff was the Democrats kind of running hard on health care, especially health care amid the pandemic kind of stuff, um, tying the senators to the administration in the way that's, you know, look how bad they are at dealing with the pandemic kind of thing. And now in the second round, there's a lot more, you know, going after the Republicans for those suspicious stock dumps after they found out about COVID and that private briefing and then, you know, unloaded all this stock. And then you have Warnock is being attacked kind of in the way of, um, was it, was Jeremiah Wright? Was that Obama's preacher? Yeah. 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 And kind of a similar way of, and Wright has actually been brought in. I'm not sure. I, I can't remember if it's like, you know, they once like went to a conference to get, or or whether it's just saying, Oh, just like another black guy loving a Jeremiah Wright type you know, that kind of, that sort of stuff. But he's, the name has been invoked. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It it feels so familiar. It's like, you know, you have these kind of Republican oppo divers going through these like very long sermons and snipping out two minutes of them and being like, see radical preacher, you know? Um, And they've already done kind of like suspect things. Like, you know, he, Warnock is a radical who hates the police, which is, the racial, they're almost not undertones, they're kind of just overtones. 
um, you know, so you have that going on now in earnest, um, you know, Purdue still calling Ossoff a, a communist and such. So things are, are getting a little... I don't know, a little a little wilder than I would say you probably see in your run-of-the-mill runoff. Am I right that there's basically been no polls of this race? And I wonder if that's because of how the polls, I, I think it's been overstated how much they missed in this election, but they were a bit off. Is that mm-hmm. why? And am I, am I even right? Are there Have there been no polls? I, I mean, really to be honest, any, uh... yeah, I haven't. I haven't come across any and I'm sweeping the landscape pretty regularly, but it, you know, there's a question of how much is that just the, the people I follow on Twitter and everything are kind of throwing their hands up around about polls. So they're not being shared as much. I, I, I mean, I looked and, and I went to the places you would see them and, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's been polled. And I wonder, I mean, it does give us a sense of the, of, of, you know, a non-poll politics. Because it, it's very interesting how all these things are happening. We don't really know, are some of them connecting? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, we, if we suddenly saw, you know, if we saw a poll that had both the Democrats up five points, we'd all be saying, man, Trump is killing them. Mm-hmm. This crazy conspiracy theories, blah, 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 blah. Or maybe if, like, you know, Warnock nosedived, we'd say, oh, you know, uh, dog whistling, all this racist, pre- you know, kind of radical preacher stuff is succeeding. But it's this funny thing because we have no idea. We have no idea who's ahead. You know, we, we and, and I, I cannot, I mean, this is not my first rodeo, right? With even in Georgia runoffs. I can't think of another time when you have a race of such consequence and there's been no polls. I mean, that is unheard of. And I can't imagine it is not because, look, it's going to be close. We know that. I mean, the races were, I mean, in, with the, uh, in the Warnock race, it was uh, one of those jungle primaries. So it, it kind of, in a way, it wasn't close, but it would have been close if, you know, Democrats or Republicans. I think Ossoff, uh, 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 Purdue was a couple points. Mm-hmm. Maybe, was it like to a two point? I can't yeah. I, Okay, so very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and and given what we have seen, if you saw it like with either candidate, you know, three points ahead, I, frankly, it would mean like nothing to me at mm-hmm. this point. And again, I, I think that there's um, the, the whole the polls missed again thing has been greatly overstated. It seems like Joe Biden will probably win the popular vote by about five percentage points. Um, And the poll consensus on the day of the election was about eight percentage points. That's off. It's not off a lot. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty close. It's, it's, It's certainly within the nominal margins of error obviously when you combine like a gajillion polls the, the margin of error in theory should should plump you know should go down a lot um but there is clearly this issue that pollsters are having a difficult time capturing a a pretty small but non-trivial number of trump voters Mm-hmm. And I still don't think we know quite why that is, but it is a thing. But again, m- my big interest here is that it does kind of, this is very different. And it might be, it, there's a lot of ways that it's better. 
because everybody should kind of say everything they want to say without the kind of the feedback loop and just see how it goes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There was one, there was one interesting, uh, episode over the weekend, Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, was down in Georgia trying to, you know, whip up support for the runoffs and for Purdue and Loeffler. And she was heckled a little bit, basically, by, I guess, you know, Republicans who were saying, oh, it's already, it's rigged, it's over, it's decided, it's stolen, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, no, it's not settled. It's, uh, we still need you to come out and vote. And it just showed a bit of the consequences of kind of drilling over and over again that the election was illegitimate, that it was stolen, that it was rigged, that no matter what you do, you know, it's, it's Republic or Democrats, I'm sorry, are going to, are going to snatch it away. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that was sort of at least an anecdotal kind of demonstration that there are consequences to that argument a bit and that people are kind of expressing frustration or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I'd say I'm a little less uh, kind about the polling miss than you are, Josh. Just to me, that's, it, fair. that's fair. I mean, you, I think you're I, you're right. Like mathematically, maybe they weren't off that much. But if they're routinely going to be off enough that you can't tell who's going to win the electoral college from them, I I just don't really see what the point is. You know, like maybe if we just did a popular vote, then I think I would be like, okay, only a few points off. That's fine, but. I don't know, maybe polling just isn't that helpful in the system that we have, which is that like two or three states get to decide the election. And if we're not precise enough to know about those two or three states, what's the point? Yeah, no, Uh, I mean, look, there's, there's, I I think the, you know, uh, you have, you have three states that were legitimately close, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. In in Pennsylvania, I think is a couple percentage points now. It's like 150. Or mm-hmm. wait, uh, I guess there it's almost 100,000 votes in Pennsylvania, 150 in Michigan. It's this funny thing with the electoral college this time because in the electoral college, it actually wasn't close. It was a pretty decisive win, and yet there were three states where it was super close. And if e and and I think. Each of those states that I said was close is, is 20,000 votes or under, and two of them are at about 10,000 votes. And if each of those would have gone to Trump, I believe he would have won the Electoral College by one vote. I think he'd be at 270 if, if uh, Wisconsin, Arizona, and uh, God, I'm spacing Georgia? Out. Yes, Georgia. and Georgia all went all went to Trump. So it's kind of, it's sort of both at the same time. But no, this is, I, I agree with you, Kay. I mean, look, I'm sort of like one of those anti-anti-Trump people here, right? I'm sort of <laughs> making a rear guard argument in the context of a generally valid point. And, and that, 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 I would put it this way. It's not so much that it's, it's surprising or a big deal that the polls were off by a few percentage points is that they were off in the same direction as last time. Right. And again, if it's just uh, uncertainty, uncertainty is one thing, but there does seem to be a pretty small, but real structural error that, that under, that underestimates some, uh, uh, Trump support. And, um, and so basically I agree. And, and, but again, it's sort of like, This is why I have kind of funny thoughts about the whole, you know, polling issue that in many ways we've been in this kind of 
weird feedback loop thing for a few weeks. Many of us who who were following the polls and the blah 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 blah. Uh, this the polls the 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 tragedy and you're sort of like what's the tragedy exactly? You thought you know you had a bad night on November third probably right. <laughs> And uh, you didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but something happened regardless. And the fact that you thought something different might happen, does that really matter? I mean, there are some potential arguments that, you know, you can have maybe Democrats would have turned to. I have no idea. But in a lot of ways, this is just a better thing. And I'm not anti-polling. I love polling. I've been obsessed with it for years. We used TPM used to have poll tracker, right? But kind of like. There's no there's no civic downside to the uncertainty. Hmm. That's fair. And I do think I very much agree with you that, um, you know, I kind of called a bunch of modelers the the week of the election, I guess, while we were still waiting for everything to shake out. Um, but, you know, by that point, it was pretty clear that there the projections were too rosy for Biden. You know, the talking about things that had Florida going blue, the high Texas toss up, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, one, uh, Elliot Morris at The Economist was kind of making the same point that you made, Josh, which is that it's not so much the error, but it's that the error has been similar now a few times. And that kind of points to a structural issue and a structural issue that, you know, pollsters knew about and tried to control for this time after 2016 by, you know, waiting for education, that kind of thing. And it didn't really seem to fix it. Um, and then you get into the theories of why is it hard to connect with Trump voters? And, you know, David Shore's low social trust idea, which is that these are people who tend to mistrust or to distrust um, institutions in general. So they're not super likely to talk to a pollster or to stay on the phone when they find out who's on the other side. So they're just harder people to reach in general. Um, and I thought Morris made an interesting point to me, which is that these people may have always been hard to reach, but it didn't matter before because these people who tend to be, you know, white, lack college education, tend to be in more blue collar jobs, that was basically who made up unions for a long time, which had kind of historically democratic ties. So if these people, you know, maybe these people were more split between the parties, but that's just not true anymore. And now that they're all siloed in the Republican Party, that's going to account for a significant polling miss if we're kind of taking this whole section of the party and just not reaching them every time. And that does have kind of direct ties into Georgia in that, these questions that we're talking about, you know, will Trump juice turnout? Will he depress the vote? Those things are going to be really hard for us to know, because if we're going off of this idea that Trump voters are hard to reach, you know, end of story, it's going to be hard to determine who's getting turned off from voting by Trump, who is really enthused about voting for the Senate, even though they freaking love Trump and they're still upset about it. You know, now that this party, the Republican Party has become the party of Trump, you know, that's undeniable based on every single elected Republican's behavior post-election. Um, these are the people who are running the party for the foreseeable future. And that we can't reach them, that maybe polling's not really being done, so it doesn't matter anyway. That just means that this Georgia race is just so replete with question marks in a way that I think not too many races have been. Um, 
because it's not just that historical precedent may not apply here, but it's because we have this group of people that are relatively new to the political scene and we don't necessarily know how the Trump acolytes will act post-Trump. And this is the first time we'll see. So, and, and, I, and I guess there, there's even a sort of ambiguity is, is that the very question itself is whether it's post-Trump. Right. Because their argument, at least on paper, is still like, oh, no, 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 no. It, we're moving towards the second Trump term. You need to give Trump the senators he needs to govern gloriously. Right? <laughs> right. So you have all these levels of cognitive dissonance. Um, and it is kind of a question, as I was saying before, how many different ideas, how many mutually contradictory ideas can people hold in their heads in one time? I will say that that low social trust theory which I guess is Shores, I didn't know exactly where it had come from. But that is my theory. That is the one that makes mm-hmm. most sense to me. Uh, and and it's interesting to me because, again, polling in general, you know, polling doesn't matter. If, if there's a crisis to polling, that's just a crisis for political junkies, right? That doesn't, that's not a civic crisis. But I think Trump, what makes it interesting to me is that Trumpism itself is that issue of low social trust and how it plays out politically. So you have a case where the, you know, fundamentally frivolous issue of polling, and I don't mean polling public opinion research is, is, is uh, frivolous. I mean the way that political junkies consume it like crack is largely frivolous. <laughs> that that, and I include myself very much in that, in that category that that largely frivolous issue is umbilically tied to the very real issue of the Trumpist political movement, uh, Trumpist hostility to democracy, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, Kate, uh, I guess we just have a couple more minutes, but maybe we can end on just you sharing kind of, I don't know, a couple of the, of the things you're looking out for most on the Georgia runoffs, whether it's Trump's visit this weekend or just, you know, what are a couple of the the big things our listeners should kind of keep an eye out for? Yeah. So for Georgia, I think a lot of eyes will be on Trump's stop this weekend, which I do think is important because it's going to give us some kind of barometer of how he's going to act. You know, if he spends the whole time kind of what I think he will do, which is list out his grievances of the stolen rigged election, we... (laughs) We know if there's any doubt that he does not actually have the discipline to campaign for other people when his own interests are not on the ballot. Um, But to some degree, I'm not convinced that Trump is going to stay invested throughout this entire Georgia race. Um, You know, we've kind of already seen him abscond to his his golf courses for most of the post-election time um, based on how he treated Martha McSally and probably one of my favorite episodes of the Trump uh, regime. He hasn't shown a, a huge ability to campaign for others when he doesn't particularly like the person or when he doesn't have really a direct interest. Um, so I think Trump's event this weekend will be interesting because we'll know how he's going to his tone, but I'm not really convinced that this won't be the last stop for Trump if he does end up going. Um, It's hard for me to see him staying really kind of keyed into something that's not about him for multiple months for, you know, the point of this is to give Republicans power 
in a, you know, debatable in a post-Trump age where he will not be part of that. And that doesn't, to me, seem like something he's going to care about particularly much. Um, so there's that piece. Um, you There's a debate, the first runoff debate of Leffler and Warnock this weekend. Um, Purdue has <laughs> refused to do any debates, so you won't see any from that side of the aisle. Um, so that'll be kind of interesting in the way that we don't know anything for sure about this race. So everything is interesting. Everything might be important, though I'm a little skeptical that kind of one-off events tend to move the needle all that much, you know, and that was sort of solidified for me from what we saw in the general election. You know, there was, for you know, remember Joni Ernst with the, the soybean bomb didn't end up actually mattering. So... Those are, you know, kind of the events on the horizon, but I don't know. I just don't know how much we're going to know about Georgia until the votes are cast, you know. We hear stories about, um, you know, organizing and little, very granular things about Democrats are currently struggling whether or not to do door knocking the campaigns. Um, So you've got little moving pieces like that, but I don't know. Let me ask you this. I, I can't imagine I, I can't imagine the campaigns aren't doing polling. And just for clarity for our listeners, campaign polls are not just private. They are usually using a very different methodology to public polls. So they're different. And I'm just curious what, you know, the campaigns must have some sense of 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 where things are. And to, you know, to your other point, Kate, about, you know, Trump just losing interest. One of the, one of the most interesting things to me over the last week or so is, you know, you saw Tony Fauci back at the white house. Uh, you saw, um, there, if you look closely, the sort of public health infrastructure has been reasserting itself. In, in recent days, uh, that Nancy Messimer guy, uh, guy, woman who, you know, kind of sounded the first alarm at the CDC way back in, I guess, February. She piped up again after being silenced for like a year. And some of that is just Trump's power disintegrating, right? And you see it even with like Burks trying to say, hey, Biden, I'm pretty good. I was never, I was never MAGA. Never. Also, I'm looking for a job. <laughs> Hello. Right. So and you see all those happening. And again, it's mainly just the the disintegration of his power. But it's also he doesn't care anymore. COVID was always a political reelection issue. And the fact that he needed you to go to school and get out and 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 make the economy roar. That was just so he could get reelected. And he just doesn't care now. So it's sort of like, you know, people are kind of coming back. And, you, and, and so to your point, I think that's entirely possible in Georgia. It's not so much he's going to turn, turn against the GOP and want to burn it all down. He doesn't give a shit anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's been four years of, you know, short attention span. He clearly doesn't care about issues. He clearly doesn't have any ideological bent other than always wanting to be the center of attention and to kind of, get the most power he can by scrupulous or unscrupulous means. So, you know, now we're facing a guy whose probably biggest priority right now is Trump 2024. So <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. 
All right. Well, remember, everybody, that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can buy some of that amazing stuff at Grady'sColdBrew.com and get 25% off your first order with the promo code TPM. Again, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, Grady'sColdBrew.com. All right. Later, folks. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. All right. See you guys next week.